Hello, and welcome back to The King and We, a Stephen King movie podcast. My name is Sean Cohan. I'm Charlie Wilcox. And we're back. Uh, kind of jumping around the timeline a little bit this week. Only a little bit, though. Just, oh, just a week, basically. <laughs> just a week. So this week we're talking about uh, 1990s Misery, directed by Rob Reiner, um, which actually came out a week later than uh, the next movie we're going to be talking about, which is 1990s It. it. Um, and because we uh, were hoping to have special guest uh, Casey back for that episode, we've had to shuffle around our schedule a little bit. So, so it but it's just, we were just remarking how wild it is that. So imagine teleport yourself back to 1990 November. <laughs> you would be able to see it on your TV screens uh, if you tune into your local ABC station. And a week <laughs> later, go and uh, go to uh, the the local Cineplex and see. Rob Reiner's uh, masterpiece, Misery. Misery. <laughs> you should have seen the, the unique uh, combination of emotions that were coming across Sean's face <laughs> at the word ma- Rob Reiner and masterpiece. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is um, another repeat director. This is the second Rob Reiner movie we've had so far. Mm-hmm. Um, the second of more than two. How many, how many are we going through? Uh, I can think of at least three. I always confuse his ones with... With Frank Darabont's. Yeah, because yeah. I think this is... I mean, we've talked about this at the very beginning of the podcast, but this is kind of... We're entering into this period of really vanilla Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. Um, and I kind From of the associate... most vanilla director you could possibly imagine. Yeah, so I kind of associate that a lot with Rob Reiner and Frank Darabont, who are two people that are very dedicated to Stephen King yeah. as a uh, both an author and a kind of as a person and a kind of aesthetic. I mean, Rob Reiner's production company is called Castle Rock. Yeah. So he, you know, like that, he has some sort of penchant for that. Yeah. But, and Stand by Me was such a big film for him that kind of like broke him out of the uh, the like Spinal Tap. Image. Well, yeah, because that like no one really thinks about Spinal Tap as a movie with a director, really. Right. And so, like, I think Stand by Me is the first one where, and like, is the first movie he has where it's kind of like, oh, this he is an actual director that has something to say, even if what he's saying is kind of, you know, facile, nostalgia stuff. Right. But then, but that kind of then like you know sets the template for other things that he wants to do you know with kind of a a well done but vanilla rom-com in when harry met sally or like a well done but kind of vanilla political drama with a few good men and the american president and like you know it's just all it's all these kind of movies and then that with reduced returns after a while yeah totally and this is um kind of this this movie exists kind of in the center of like a a great run he had of these like major critical and commercial successes of like the princess bride stand by me harry met sally a few good men like all of those came in a row over the course mm-hmm. of like four or five years um, and, and a few good men is probably the last one movie of his that has is kind of universally thought of as if not a masterpiece like it as well regarded yeah even though i I feel like people don't really associate that one with um rob reiner as much as they do aaron sorkin but yeah it's true um and he, I mean, he has a talent for meshing with good screenwriters. So, like Misery, both Misery and The Princess Bride are both uh, William Goldman scripts, right. I believe. And I mean, William Goldman is uh, is you know a legend. Totally. Um, um, 
Well, that, I mean, that brings up the question of what it means to uh, to mesh well with a good screenwriter. If you're, pre- uh, yeah, if you're presenting, yeah, uh, because I mean, in the case of, I mean, like, we can just get into what we think about this movie. But in the case of Rob Reiner, I feel like his uh, his method is to stay as far away as possible. Like he, this is a movie without directorial like influence or intent. Yeah, and I mean, like that's why it's so easy to forget that he that someone like Rob Reiner directed movies like Spinal Tap or or um, The Princess Bride that are so artistically unique in their ways because he's so vanilla. He's so, you know, he's so middle of the road yeah. kind of... He just kind of presents things. I mean, it's hard to find kind of an auteurist line through his work because... Uh, I think one of the one of the things I'd argue about Misery is like it's a well done movie, but that's because of a few elements being so good yeah. that like it lifts everything else up. Because like Rob Reiner doesn't actively harm the movie, but he doesn't really do anything to benefit either. And so you know, it's something that I'd be interested to see what Misery would look like with someone that actually has like an artistic vision behind it. Totally. I mean, the, the whole movie is just so plainly presented. Um, so much of it is set in the, this one location and there's no real variation to how they choose to like frame these shots or light these scenes or just mm-hmm. anything. It feels so plain throughout that. Like by the end of it, you feel like you've kind of been watching a play the whole time. Um, and honestly, the script would work perfectly well as a play. Like you yeah. could, you could just throw these actors on a stage and it would maybe I, be a better experience. I kind of vaguely think that there might be a play, but I also might just be having weird flashbacks to the Carrie musical that they tried to make. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Can we find a v, like a, a VHS recording of that Carrie musical and do a review of that? Yeah, if you can find it, we'll do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if it exists. Is it like print- a Broadway musical? Is it a real thing? I think it was off Broadway. I don't know if it la- it only lasted like like three showings or 1988. something. Nineteen eighty eight. Jeez, no it it's been started off on Broadway. First was on Stratford on Avon, uh, and it has been performed as recently as twenty fifteen in Los Angeles. That's insane. Yeah, it's it's it was a it was an immersive production. No. I don't understand. You how are it has, the prom. I don't understand how it has how it was produced so many times when it's a notorious flop. I guess it's not. I guess it's not as bad as like Spider Man or whatever. I don't really know anything about it. I wasn't aware of this. We'll have to do some. We'll, we'll do some off 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 mic research and see if we can find a, some sort of recording. Yeah, because oh. I, I want to see it. Well, there's a record. There's there a production there is in a Seattle. YouTube. Of the 2012 Off Broadway revival. Okay, well, we'll we'll check it out. We'll report back. Yeah, I'm, it's probably not worth watching. Well, you know, neither's neither's a lot of things. <laughs> um, but Misery uh, is worth watching, more or less. Would you uh, say? Would you say that Rob Reiner is a cockadoodie director? <laughs> so what's amazing about this movie is famously Kathy Bates's performance. She is yep. fantastic. Maybe is she. Is she the only person? We might have had this discussion. Is she the only person to win an Oscar off of a Stephen King adaptation? I think we had this discussion. I think I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> We're going to assume. I, I've forgotten. Not, no one has won an Oscar yet. So Kathy Bates is the first person to win an Oscar off, right. of, a, off of a Stephen King adaptation. And she deserves it. She does, yeah. I mean, she, she, <laughs> she works for her Oscar in this movie. <laughs> she, she works. Uh, 
nothing so the William Goldman script is pretty good it's a good adaptation of a of a book that is um that doesn't really need that much tweaking to be a, a good movie I don't think right um so I, I don't think it requires a Herculean effort on his part Kathy Bates needs to needed to give a Herculean effort to lift everything up from being average to being something worth like worth pondering and worth considering as a classic of Stephen King movies. Totally, um, yeah. She, <laughs> where to start with this performance? Like, or even with this character? Yeah. So, uh, so we're, you're probably familiar with misery as a concept because it's it's kind of it's an it's another one of those concepts that people know about. Right, it's been parodied so many times yeah. and referenced so many times, but it's the, it's pretty simple. The basic thrust of the plot is that a famous writer who's kind of a stand-in for Stephen King himself, yeah. um, although I guess with some he's a, he writes romances, he writes romance novels, not horror not horror uh, and he has a series of romance novels all starring the same character misery chastain which sucks <laughs> it's, it's kind of hilarious um gets in a car accident nearly dies is rescued by this woman who is his number one fan and held captive by her yeah. while the outside world thinks he's dead and and appreciably about this movie it very quickly gets to the point like i think within the first 30 minutes and this is not a short movie it's almost two hours long yeah um within 30 minutes you like both you and as a viewer and Paul Sheldon played by James Caan mm-hmm. knows that she's holding him there indefinitely and right. maliciously. Yeah. It, in almost, I mean, we watched it together. I kind of commented on it at the scene. There is, it's, um, it does kind of play around with the whole, like him not knowing the like true nature of the situation for a little bit. And then the moment where that's revealed is so, blunt and to the point and kind of like tossed off it's almost surprising and i i can i can appreciate that because i think it's then i don't need a movie where it's playing around with is she or isn't she for like i i I agree with you in that i'm glad that they didn't waste a bunch of time with that and like have just the inherently frustrating experience of watching him not understand what's happening yeah um but it was it it happens in such a blunt way of her literally turning to the camera and saying i didn't call anybody you're trapped here by yourself if i die then you die yeah which that last line is what kind of put me off that that, that is putting a little bit maybe too much icing on the cake well and also like addressing a question that hadn't been asked that like you know, I, I guess it's preempting the the question of like why can't he just murder her? But like it it seemed like a step yeah. too far for that conversation. Yeah, I kind of like that line could have came later when like maybe when she discovers at the, any of the scenes in which he tries to murder her. Yeah, when she discovers <laughs> that, or like when the scene where she he dr- he's drugged by her with an with a, a needle, and then he she he she wakes up and she knife. has the knife yeah, totally. that he had had hid. Um, that would make more sense there yeah. necess- than necessarily in this part. Um, but other than that, I mean, like, I also kind of like, I think that scene is, yeah, maybe a little bit clumsy, but I think it also gets to like her instability as a character, like that she is kind of, she's so, she, uh, quickly snaps from being so like pleasant and refusing to swear to being like totally super out of control, menacing, angry and, and needing to quickly control the situation by any means necessary. Yeah, I know. I think it works for her character. Although I think that some of the other scenes handle that volatility a little bit better, Mm -hmm. especially the, the like initial one with, uh, it was the swearing, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, where, um, 
so that's kind of the that's the thing I forgot about this story is that like is that Paul Sheldon he so he is he has finished his this new novel he has um, also he, we haven't said James Kahn's name yet I, I said James Kahn's oh, okay. name yeah James Kahn I think he does a good good in this performance but he's a little bit he's a little bit more likely to rest on his laurels yeah. and kind of play it a little bit too easy at points totally he he doesn't really. I mean, he doesn't have that much to do with the role mm-hmm. other than, like, look like he's in pain and roll around. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't... The, the, he's just kind of overshadowed by Kathy Bates just chewing up the scenery the yeah. whole time. And and wisely, he doesn't have... He doesn't really have a lot of scenes where he's, like... Where he loses it or does yeah. anything like that. There's just a couple too many scenes where he, like... He kind of astutely knows how to play her and re-respond. Re- yeah in a way that like doesn't upset her. And I've kind of needed maybe another scene or two where he would maybe do something that she doesn't like and then be like punished for it in, yeah. a, in a, some sort of small way. Well, it's, it's also odd how he is like basically without fault and like basically perfect the entire movie. Like he's okay. this like this millionaire hugely successful writer who the world is just unfair to and is put okay, in these unfair so situations this is this is what makes this this entire story insane <laughs> this story shouldn't exist i know it's it it's, shouldn't it's almost reprehensible it, it it actually kind of is so stephen king can say whatever he wants about this being a story about his addictions because he says that about every story right. that uh, has come out that came out prior to him, you know, kicking becoming his sober and becoming sober, and that's fine. Like, yes, that is a totally credible way to read this. Yeah, but it's also totally about being a rich author. It's totally about the pressures of being a hugely successful author. And so, like, as as a story, this is applicable to like three people in the history of the world. I know, and like, <laughs> like. What like is he? Did he like it, workshop this with J.K. Rowling and John Grisham? The idea that like the it's this much of a fucking struggle to have people like your work mm-hmm. and have expectations of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. And it's okay. I, okay, where I can appreciate this concept is in like where it becomes interesting is like the idea that you're making your core audience, your primary readers, the villain of your story very right. consciously. Like I can't. I don't. It's hard to really think about some another thi- another piece of media that does this so, uh, so so blatantly. Well, it, it's just funny because like the idea of of a film as like, or as like the the relationship between the audience and the writer and like the com- the inherent conversation that happens there, especially when it comes to like serialized media, mm-hmm. is an interesting thing to talk about in a movie like this. But the idea that the the audience is just the villain and the writer is just the hero and like they are evil for having expectations mm-hmm. or like consider like it's just hilarious. It's 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 bonkers. Yeah. And I think when you're making so I mean that's obviously kind of more pertinent to the novel in itself because right. that then you have that one to one relationship between reader and write and author. Right. Whereas this you're getting that in a this film you're getting a separation. And what you're bringing up is a is a good point because I mean James Kahn is still treated as this like as this completely innocent author that's done nothing wrong. Yeah. Whereas obviously he's kind of playing it as this like chauvinistic like like smooth, off like you know kind of he's he, there's kind of this element there's, of there's him a being out of yeah a smarminess him. and being out of touch a little bit. Yeah. 
um, that really could have been elevated because you're not you're not coming from the perspective of the, like of the author. You're coming from the perspective of like a collaborative film that is separating that character from being the the primary like uh, narrator or right. primary kind of like arbiter of this story. Yeah. And so you can you can build that separation from those two characters that this movie doesn't really try to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it, it's just crazy watching a, a movie with just this much disdain for its primary audience. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of comes calls to mind another adaptation that Stephen King famously bristles at because it kind of reinterprets his his surrogate character because this has a lot in common with the shining yeah totally i mean i mean the main maybe not in the kind of themes that it's going for but in the setting and kind of the overall plot arc because it's i mean you have a b plot with this character that's essentially trying to do good right and it's like kind of laboriously trying to find these characters follows the exact same arc yeah yeah so it's the same arc arc as uh scavin crothers it has in the shining where he's like or he's trying to do good and find them. There's a lot of really like kind of weird extraneous scenes of him trying to interpret this information and then get to the location that the main character is being held captive in only for him to die very unceremoniously when he gets there. Yeah. It is kind of funny that the, uh, the, you know, parallel films, one in which the author is the uh, megalomaniacal mm-hmm. psychopath and one in which the audience is Stephen King would choose the uh, the latter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, it's I don't know about that. But no, it's just like, so there's, there's those parallels, but that's what, what I'm saying is that like, essentially, in, you know, with, with The Shining, Kubrick reinterpreted this character as being a villain. Right. Um, whereas Stephen King obviously had, um, had, uh, Jack Torrance being a much more conflicted character. Right. And then this movie kind of doesn't really question that, like the audience, the author surrogate being a good character, whereas maybe it would have been a little bit more complex if he was some sort of more morally gray character. Um, yeah, I mean, I, but the thing is, I don't know. I don't, I mean, Aside from like putting in some B plots about how he's a bad father or something, I don't know how you could really create a situation in which he's a morally great character in this movie. Just because it's this, it's this constructed, uh, this this constructed plot in which he like is inherently in the right. <laughs> no, it's true. Where and, he can do no wrong. And I feel like the yeah, like I feel like assigning that to an to a uh, filmmaker who is adapting this, they a standard response would be to kind of like have them take, be taking advantage of the Annie Wilkes character in some way. Yeah. Um, and just kind of overlooking them and then kind of bring up the, uh, the gendered angles of that. Yeah. Because I mean, obviously there's a lot of gendered, uh, that's going on here with, um, Annie Wilkes as being like a prototypical, like female consumer. Right. And, and Paul Sheldon being a prototypical, like male creator, male creator who is like, you know, sexually appealing and, you know, wealthy and, you know, charismatic. Yeah. And the, the female consumer being needy and, uh, you know, less, less like charismatic and less attractive. It's just like yeah. there's a lot there's a lot there that could be really brought to the fore. Yeah. Um and really kind of made more explicit. 
Yeah, well, and less toxic. Yeah, the, the especially by the end, like once the true nature of her character is revealed, it's 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 almost shocking how little empathy the film has towards her where mm-hmm. like by the end of the film she's revealed to be this like baby murdering like <laughs> too, much, too much icing on the cake yeah do you, do you really need her to be a like i feel like that's the that's um the creator is being not confident enough in her like in her own level of tyranny that they need to like reinforce like oh she's actually bad because like it's not just this it's like she's a serial killer right like to totally absolve the main character of her murder or of killing her mm-hmm. at the end of the film like by creating this like she's done enough bad over the course <laughs> of the movie that you don't need her to be this serial killer it also kind of confuses a lot of the other plot and like how it it's just a weird detail to throw in there because mm-hmm. how, how does she have this house how do the police not know that there's a serial killer living in the town where the man has gone missing yeah because like, like she goes to jail for this it's not like she's like there's articles in the newspaper and the people around town seem to know her mm-hmm. like, <laughs> it's just there's a lot of questions about that yeah um so the other i mean the the main part of the plot that i kind of forgot is how um how paul sheldon is working on a um, manuscript for a novel that's vastly different than these Misery Chastain novels. And that the Misery Chastain novel that's about to be published, he kills off this character. So he's kind of freed of this character, free of the monkey on his back and that he can start, start something fresh. And he's writing this kind of, you know, very autobiographical kind of John Updike, Philip Roth type. Like this is my, the story of my youth growing up in this, like in the, with these like, Games. street kids yeah and so that that part is kind of um like that is interesting from a stephen king point of view because like i'm looking i'm looking at his bibliography leading up to misery misery and i don't i mean he had uh, the eyes of the dragon which is like maybe his most forgotten novel which is like a pure fantasy novel but there's not really like i don't feel like he's like really tried to publish anything that's like out of his wheelhouse at that point and being like rejected for it. He's still right. in his like commercial heyday. So I under, so like it's, that's an interesting comment about him like wanting to be free of this like horror label, um, which I think interestingly mirrors this kind of the film arc of Stephen King in Hollywood where he, the movies stop, start being less and less about explicit horror and more about right. prestige type films kind of starting with you know the rob reiner misery and and stand by me two punch yeah totally um yeah it's interesting how it kind of well i mean it's odd because it doesn't explicitly make the connection to horror but it makes the connection to genre Mm -hmm. in terms of the fact that these are i i guess they're implied to be romance novels yeah um they're meant to be kind of like yeah these harlequin romance that are like that are you know written for he like he looks down on his audience and it's like these you know like annie wilkes these kind of like you know housewife towards types that like and he's like he wants to be taken seriously by like the times and yeah. whatnot and and like the last scene which is yeah how great. crazy is that fucking ending where oh, yeah also we you know lauren bacall is in this movie as his for agent. two scenes yeah, yeah as his agent and like the last scene is like this basically fantasy sequence in which he gets this everything he wants pat on the back where everything works out the critics love him now and the situation ended up helping him in the end after all yeah so and then the plot twist is that people still like his books. <laughs> this, this, I mean, this, it really shouldn't work. And it's like, in, 
it, it, it's only because Kathy Bates brings this like su- this such this like, and I think we should. This is where we should really talk about her performance in depth because it's so baroque and so like so yeah. when it, when she's on on uh, screen, it just really feels like you're entering this sort of like fever dream, like almost like this like Tennessee Williams esque like like every like super sweaty like nonsense that's yeah. like you know everyone's id is just coming out and it just doesn't it doesn't really it yeah, the way she exists like, outside of like reality almost yeah and the way she jumps back and forth between these extremes of like screaming at him or telling him he loves him or like just talking in her weird like inoffensive like i don't know midwestern housewife kind of way yeah um, duty. yeah <laughs> Um, it's, it's like really striking and really watchable and like really, really entertaining. And there's mm-hmm. a reason this movie's a big hit. There's a reason everyone's mom in the world loves this movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, she just steals the show entirely. Mm-hmm. And like we said, James Caan does his job perfectly well. He earns his paycheck. It's fine, mm-hmm. but it's really just like, it's the Kathy Bates show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it, specifically in that first scene, um, where she's sitting down after she has read, the the manuscript for this that this new um this new book or when she's talking about the swearing oh she criticizes him for all the swearing yeah and she's and then she loses control and so much of the time like all how her like loss of control is symbolized is like her splashing or like you know threatening to splash these liquids or these like other materials on on um on paul sheldon yeah where it's without without really noticing totally where it's the it's the soup initially and then it's the urine and then it's the, the lighter, lighter fluid, fluid at the end yeah um also playing into kind of a weird gender dynamic there uh, <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> hmm. um and it makes but like that scene alone makes for like this great just the visual gag of her the soup like edging closer and closer to him as he like kind of shirks away from him and she starts shouting louder and louder mm-hmm. like it works out pretty well mm-hmm. um and yeah so the like you said that that scene's mirrored a few other times throughout the film there's a lot of moments in which she'll jump between the like shouting annie and you know lovable annie mm-hmm. um and i mean there, there's just so many like elements of like the like the first scene in which uh misery the pig shows up misery the pig and you're just kind of like, real <laughs> And you're just scene like, what, stealer, showstopper. what is going on in this? Like, and you're just like, it's so kind of absurd. Did you write, do you, do you remember what her line is there before she leaves the room? Oh, there's so many, like, just, you know, kind of self-aware jabs at her through her own dialogue. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what that one was. Um, but what, she makes what, some grand proclamation about his work and then starts imitating a pig and running around the room in circles. Oh, it's so good. Um, um, and I, I mean, the cinematography, like like we talked about, like the cinematography is actively working against her here. Yeah. Because it's so often like these extreme close-ups that are so cartoonish. Yeah. Where her like, and it's, they're lit so extremely. So it's just like these like, like purplish red like uh, like right from her chin perspectives where you can just see the sweat on her cheeks and it's just like it's it's it's, underlining things way too much it's almost like a comic book style to it but without the like intense contrast you would want from something like that because the whole movie has this very bland look to it Mm -hmm. like the color palette doesn't change much everything's super brightly lit the Mm -hmm. entire time Mm -hmm. um it's almost like her apartment's uh, soundstage yeah (laughs) 
And um, I mean, it, it, it's not as, and it like, luckily this is all takes place in that, that apartment or the, the, the house. house. Yeah. Um, and it's not that bothersome there, but it really comes out in any scene that doesn't happen in the house. Like any New York scene, it's so flat. Mm-hmm. And like Barry Sonnenfeld, the uh, future director did the cinematography for this. And like, it's so, 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 so flat and so ugly. And it's just like, yeah. it, it really brings to mind like, oh, what was that? Oh, Nine Lives, his Barry Sonnenfeld's most recent movie that just looks like a piece of garbage. It looks like a fucking nightmare. Yeah, it's yeah. everything. It, it really is the same thing of everything's like evenly, brightly lit. The colors are all like, you know, blues and whites. It's just, it's hideous. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie also insists on reusing the same shot over and over again for any scene in which he's in a wheelchair of his feet pointed directly at the camera and then his head in uh, in focus, you know, behind the rest of his body. And it's just the ugliest, most confusing shot to, like, build it, your entire movie around. Because it looks like his feet are the, are the same level as his It looks head. like his feet are the same size of his head on either side of it. It's, and they're blurry and gray. And it's awful. That being said, and this brings up something else... The uh, the violence and the uh, like the grotesque bodies in this movie are pretty good. Oh yeah, I mean the scenes in which you can actually see his feet, uh, some fucking gross feet. Yeah, they got bad legs, dude. Yeah, I mean the most. Of course, we haven't even mentioned the most infamous scene in the entire movie, in which he gets hobbled. Yeah, um, which I feel like is what most people remember this movie for more than anything else. Yeah, because I mean, I th- it's one of those movies that I think you know it's not. I mean, there there's definitely some effective uh, grotesque like body horror. Yeah. Um, that and then like the the final confrontation where they're kind of they're like bludgeoning each other yeah uh are both pretty good but they're not so extreme if you're if especially if you're of our vintage and have they came yeah. up during the the rise of torture porn right as the dominant horror genre but because it had such mainstream appeal like i think the hobbling scene is probably one of the, one of the top 5 most grotesque things a lot of the people that have seen this movie have ever seen in a movie. I think you're probably right about that. I think that scene stuck with people who were not prepared to watch it. Yeah. Like, I think that's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of like the 127 hours thing where like yeah. a bunch of people that were watching kind of like a, a thrilling, but like kind of dramatically appealing, possibly Oscar movie. Right. Are, are then watching something that is completely, you know, grotesque and in confrontation with their, the limitations of the human body Yeah, and they cannot handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I saw that in a theater. People walked out. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that at, at, with my parents and people walked out yeah. <laughs> in, my, in, in our living room. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that scene, I, like you said, you know, having seen the things that I've seen, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's actually almost surprising how, brief and like to the point that scene is yeah um but it's still pretty fucked up it's it's fucked up and i think it's effective in like you only see his leg his foot going sideways for a second yeah because it like that's a canny that's a that is a canny uh filmmaking decision by the editing team yeah because it's like you're looking you're like it's something that's so horrible you have to look away right away right and just lets you um think about that exact moment without really having a clear like picture of it in your mind mm-hmm. as opposed to just lingering on it for a while. Like the first scene where you see his, um, his legs 
are earlier on in the movie are it's gross because they're all purple and swollen but then the next scene where he's like on the floor and you get the good close-up of them they look like puppet legs yeah it's true um like by having his, his you, that one split second you're you're just imprinting that it's it's like a quick stamp yeah into your head and it's really effective likewise i think the final confrontation scene where where um where kathy bates get go gets pretty bug-eyed bashed in yeah face is like pretty effectively gross and i mean we made that we made that note when we were watching it last night that um this is pretty this is like kind of proto torture porn totally yeah like it's 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 so funny that like you know the torture porn became this like basically slogan by which to bash those horror movies of like the early 2000s and late 90s but honestly this is aside from like the the degree of like grotesqueries it's not that different. It's the same structure as a lot of those movies. It's the same kind of like arc. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically just milder torture porn for moms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's torture. It's like 50 shades of gray of torture porn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the one thing that I think it has going for it that makes it more interesting than a lot of those type of torture porn things or you know 50 shades of gray now that i brought it up yeah is that it has this kind of eccentric spirit behind it oh totally that i think both kathy bates as annie wilkes exhibits but also the b plot with the sheriff yeah because those scenes are totally superfluous but really endearing they're really great like those two characters work so well the sheriff and his wife yeah so the, the sheriff's played by richard farnsworth who's you know a kind of classic actor you probably know him the best for uh, the lead in the straight story by right. david lynch um, but he's been he was around for forever, and then the wife is played by Frances Sternhagen, um, and the wife is both um, both his wife and his sheriff because his deputy. Yeah, there's a lot like, and I feel like that's something that is appealing with like kind of the overall Stephen Kinginess of it is that it those two characters are basically a vehicle to really emphasize like the small town element of it. Yeah, um, how it's kind of like you know a really like two-person operation and like no one no one really there's no one there that's like a professional in any sort of thing and they all have to be kind of reliant in the with each other right um which makes it kind of like because there's like there's something that is dramatic happening he lingers with it a lot more than like you know the the other the other side of the trope being like the big town thing where no one really bats an eye and everyone it keeps going on where he's very persistent in trying to figure out what happened right when it draws the parallel from the uh the state trooper making the announcement that he has certainly died there's no way he could have survived to him looking at the car and seeing somebody had pried it open Mm -hmm. and knowing that like there's something else happened yeah the that innate small town america knowledge that something weirder is going on Mm -hmm. um but yeah, uh, I don't know. What else do we have to say about this movie? It's weird that also Stephen King basically wrote the exact opposite of this and it would be turned into a movie about tw- 15 years later. What movie? Uh, the Secret Window. Or no, Secret Window. Oh, you know, I've never seen that. I've not. I don't think I've seen it either, but I've read the short story. But basically in concept, because this one, this is about... A, per, a, a person who antagonizes an author by making them create a new story for them. And that one is actually the more obvious story to tell, which is someone like someone that antagonizes an author by saying that they took their story. Oh, okay. 
So it's 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 kind of weird. I was like thinking about that, and I don't know if there's anything to be gained from this, but I was like, this is definitely the more oblique and like less obvious version of this story, like of the two sides of the story. And so then it's kind of funny for him to go back and write the more obvious version where someone's write like the dumber version, yeah. where someone's angry at them for taking a story that wasn't theirs. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of like I mean we had, we haven't even said that, but like that's the whole narrative push of the second half of this movie is that is that Annie Wilkes is making him write him to rewrite the, his next book. Yeah. Well, yeah. Make a new misery Chastain story after the one where he, where she dies comes out. Right. She, yeah, she takes control of the, uh, the misery series by forcing him to write it to her whims. Yeah. And I guess that's an interesting point too, is that she, there, she also represents this certain type of reader that I think a lot of, that I think has actually become more prominent yeah. Where she asks for complete literalism right. in the story. So like there's a long sequence in which she gets really upset at him for his like the first chapter of the story where he kind of comes up with this like, you know, she ca- she came back because like there is, I don't know, it's like some sort of false fall like Right. I don't know. Basically undoes something that happens at the end of the first or the last one. Yeah. And basically says like, oh, that actually didn't happen. Right. Um as it said as it as it was said, like there was some other explanation. And then she got really upset saying like, and told this story about like how she would see these like serials and that like there'd be a cliffhanger. And then the next episode, the next episode, the next week, the cliffhanger was basically undone and was like the character is shown to jump out of a car when right. the, the last one showed that they definitely didn't. Yeah. Um, which is a nice parallel with what happened with he, with him going off a cliff in a car. Right. But I think it's like really representative of this like type of reader or this type of consumer that demands everything to have a perfectly literal explanation yeah, and a perfectly like, uh, kind of heuristically sound, uh, I realization of how a world works and doesn't, ex- doesn't allow for any sort of like basically literariness that t- kind of like separates from reality right which i think is maybe even a more pertinent thing for stephen king to be saying that like they people don't want people want these like stories that are like obviously fantastical because like like the romance stories that paul sheldon is writing where it's like this romantic like historical fantasy that's that creates this romance yeah they want these like stories that are you know these horror fantasies that are feel real because they're in you know the small town America that they're coming from. Right. But they don't want any sort of like kind of overt metaphoricalness or kind of overt, I don't know, dream logic that, that leaves reality. And so they get, and so he'll get complaints from these writer, these readers that are, that like don't want him to be basically a literary writer almost. Yeah, totally. And I think that's really appealing. Um, Yeah. What I, what I couldn't get out of my head, especially with those portions of the story is just like, how much that impulse and that notion kind of easily attaches to a lot of the cultural things, a lot of, a lot of the cultural events surrounding uh, TV and movies in the past few years, particularly the most recent star Wars movie (laughs) where people have been demanding that they rewrite it and remake it and like undo that film from the franchise, which is (sighs) okay. I'm not going to go on a long tangent, but I, I just, this is how I feel like we're in a simulation. When people can go out of that movie that is like essentially like 
maybe the, one of the better. St- I mean, it doesn't. You don't even have to believe it's one of the better Star Wars movies yeah. that exists. I'd be perfectly fine if you thought it was a mediocre Star Wars movie, along with every other Star Wars movie. But to think that it is markedly worse and and ruining the a franchise is insane to me. Yeah, insane. And, yeah, well, and it, it's the idea. It's the idea that somebody might take some artistic liberty with the film, mm-hmm. like every like the the crux of all their criticisms, aside from like the obviously sexist and racist ones. Um, were that things didn't play out exactly the way that they had imagined them in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, they being like the internet, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like fan culture at Pe- large. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know that. It, it's it's funny that this movie was made, you know, almost 30 years ago now when like <laughs> this shit is insane in 2018 between Westworld and fucking Star Wars and, yeah, and, and Game of Thrones. Like fan culture has become this absolutely out of control monster and it's even happening i mean like i'm not involved in this scene that much but like just reading some things like in like young adult fiction which is kind of like the realm realm of like where like a lot of this kind of rabid fandom exists in the literary world nowadays right um where people think they have ownership over these like characters and authors like yeah. to do so much so, so that like authors are demanded that like include certain types of characters in their stories right um and that if they don't match with what they like what the audience expects them to tell the types of stories that they're expected to tell the audience the author will get boycotted right I, I remember hearing about that like last year when that big controversy happened although to be fair i also am kind of at a distance from the young adult literature scene yeah so but i mean it's just it's just that's I think a more um, the maybe the most pertinent way, and I think if you were to remake mystery, misery nowadays, that would be definitely an angle that would be taken. Totally, um, yeah. And in, in in an era in which you know, arti- you know, artistic ownership is uh, even more tenuous than it ever was. Yeah. So I guess that's maybe where we can kind of finish this up. Is I'm actually I like you know I haven't heard anything about this being looked at as being possibly uh, ripe for a remake in this kind of new era of Stephen King adaptations. But um, I think that this would be an actually a good movie to be remade. I don't think necessarily because yeah, I don't want anyone to, you know, try and do a Kathy Bates impersonation, mm-hmm. but I think because there's so many elements of the technical side of this being the cinematography, the direction, the, editing and the score which we haven't remarked upon but is really overt and kind of over the top uh yes really like and unnecessary yeah kind of overpowering a lot of the time yeah um that i think like if you were to give an up like an up-and-coming director that you may be like maybe a studio like bloomhouse or like like i don't know even like a larger one like universal or wants to give like an up and coming director a prove it sort of movie, this would be a good thing to do because you like I think a director could do a lot of interest make a lot of interesting aesthetic choices in telling of diff uh an essentially similar but you know some in some ways maybe thematically a little bit different totally version of this story. Um, um I, and something like like what I was imagining would be like like uh, like imagine like with It Comes at Night last year with Trey Edward Schultz, where it was naturally lit through all these lamps and all these things. Imagine a version of this that wasn't so washed out and, and overly lit. And totally. Like, in like, Annie Wilkes is existing in these kind of weird shadows the entire time. That yeah. would be so much more terrifying. I mean, honestly, it's I, I haven't seen a movie in such a long time that was so clearly hobbled by its uh, 
that was an accident uh, by by its cinematography. It's mm-hmm. it's so um, it, it it robs it of any like mood or tone beyond what the actors can evoke at any particular moment, um, which is just a real bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that one of the reasons why this hasn't been remade yet and is being talked about being remade is that for so many people, this movie is Kathy Bates. Um, and now nothing's sacred. They'll remake anything. So I'm sure it'll happen at some point, but I, I feel like there'd be a lot of backlash to an announcement that they were remaking this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, also a, a quick Google search to see if a remake is in the works did not turn anything up, but this movie is, ha- was in fact made into a Broadway production just a few years ago, starring Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf. Wild. <laughs> I knew that I knew there was a, some sort of, some sort of Broadway version of this. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's it's well built for a Broadway. It, it would be perfect. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's perfect for a stage adaptation. I, I don't know that I would cast Bruce Willis in my uh, Broadway adaptation of anything, but no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. But cool that it exists. Anyway, uh, let's leave it at that for misery for now. Um, we gotta we, do one more thing. Oh, what do we? Oh, is there a tagline for this movie? There, I mean, there has to be. Uh, misery. There's some text. It's small. I can't read it. Here we go. You ready? Yes. Paul Sheldon used to write for a living. Now he's writing to stay alive. That's pretty good. That's pretty. I mean, uh, the living stay alive thing is clever. Um, although, it, and it, it's it's it, it it accurately describes the plot without telling you exactly what the plot is. Yeah. So I think like that is intriguing. It could also describe a much worse movie. So yeah. I, so. I'll give that a seven. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with you on that one. I'll give that one a seven. That's that's solid. The okay, so the other two taglines that that IMDb lists are bananas. Okay. So give the first one, this one's a little bit more obvious, but this Christmas there will be dot 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 misery. That sucks. Keep going. I don't even. Know, this can't be a real one. It's the tide has come. <laughs> Which what, what could that even possibly refer to? What? What? That's not real. That can't be real. The tide. Is that, is that a reference to something? This movie's set in Colorado. There's no tide anywhere. I this, for hundreds of miles. I don't understand. I don't understand. Okay, that one for sheer nuts. That has to. That's at least a seven. <laughs> Because it doesn't make any sense. I'm trying to find a poster with that on it. I can't. Oh, well. Well. On that note. On that note, we'll be back in just a minute to talk some uh, Castle Rock. Yeah, episodes five and six. Episodes five and six. And, oh, wait. Uh, Uh, Okay. And, And we're back talk about episodes five, five and six, six of castle, castle rock, rock. <laughs> uh so, so when we left castle rock how did we leave castle rock we left castle rock with a mass murder a mass murder in the, oh in, right the, in the, the prison the prison the shooting which right. is kind of the first real big what the heck's going on here big, type super intense hyper violent sequence yeah and episode five kind of it, it's weird because it kind of just moves on from that. Yeah. Without like, like it, it starts getting more into this, this thing that, uh, Henry Deaver has this like, um, 
uh, tinnitus, this like ringing right. that comes up from time to time. This weird shining problem that's reactivated by um, being the the gunshots that are going off near his ears, right? Um, or he thinks is, but it's also has to do with his relationship with um, with Molly, with Molly, right? And the kid being there. So there's kind of like I don't. It's weird because that's not really dealt with by any of the main characters so much well also what's crazy is that the like that big shooting is kind of the end of shawshank prison as a meaningful location in the show yeah because the the main result of that is that like the someone higher up calls the warden and tells her to just let the kid go and it all happens very abruptly in like the first 15 minutes of the episode it kind of wraps that whole thing up they say release the kid it doesn't matter how and you know before you're even at the first commercial break, he's walking out of the prison, never to go back. Yeah. And, it, and then it becomes, from there it becomes clear that we're, like, it's the warden that, played by the lost guy. Um, Terry O'Quinn. Terry O'Quinn, that is the, uh, kind of the primary motivate, like, because he's the one that imprisoned him. And so right. that's, like, the mystery part. And Shawshank itself isn't as important as a location. Right. Which is kind of a little bit off from what we were expecting, but I guess maybe that's the creators being like, Shawshank isn't actually in Castle Rock. We need to make sure it's all more Castle Rock centered. Well, I think that's probably for the best. Um, like we even mentioned when we talked about the first four episodes, the show should have been called Shawshank prison mm-hmm. based on how much like time and energy was spent in and around it mm-hmm. as opposed to everywhere else. Um, and then, so at the beginning of episode five is really where we wave goodbye to the prison. I don't even think it comes back at all afterwards. Not in episode five or six that yeah. we've seen since then. Um, Which, I mean, also then gives them the ability to move on and not really have to deal with the fallout of so many of their their prison guards being killed by another prison guard. It is kind of funny that there was a massive mass shooting in this town that nobody mentions again. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, I think it's in some ways it's kind of effective because it's going from that to then like this motif of the wild fires that are going on outside yes. of the town. And I think that's kind of like that conflagration that is going on. Yeah. It's kind of the metaphorical outcome of this of the shooting and of the kid being freed right um so it's and boy of, is that a weird episode to watch on the uh, west coast of the united states right now when it is smoky it as is, heck yeah you go outside and it is that color out there yeah it, it's it feels very real yeah it's very visceral <laughs> right now um but yeah so that like so that that it kind of moves on quickly from that but episode five is also pretty action-packed i think there's a really good sequence in episode five um a really good horror sequence and that's when so that's kind of weird because like the family sequence yes yeah yeah um so a lot of this episode is kind of like what do we do with the kid right um and henry deaver feeling weirdly responsible in this kind of weird way so they put him up in molly's uh base molly's office that has like this large loft above it um and then he he goes on this weird thing with um, Jackie Torrance, which doesn't really go anywhere uh, until he like freaks out because he can hear everyone's voices. Right. But uh, he kind of wanders around town for a lot of this um, after dark. And there's a good sequence in which that I think is a really effectively done horror sequence in which he wanders into this house and basically all through audio, it's it's this kid's birthday party right. that it, quickly it, goes astray. It presents this 
like this image, this scene of this child's birthday party, very small, just like a family sitting around the table cutting mm-hmm. into a cake. Um, and then from non-direct shots of just shadows and like other rooms, you kind of hear everything slowly get more and more intense and more and more violent to the point where they're all murdering each other. Yeah. Um, and if that feels really Stephen King, like, yeah. like you can imagine reading that on a page. Totally. Um, and it, it just, the, the, the camera, it's a good camera work because it just following Bill Skarsgård as he wanders through this house as that's going on in the right. background. Um, so I was like getting pretty jazzed off that because I thought that was kind of be kind of like a thing that happens for a little while. Yeah. That, I mean, it works really, it's, it's just one brief scene and it's not really remarked on again, but it works really well. Um, and it, I, I, it, it effectively straddles the line of like not actually showing what's happening and not getting too like exploitative with it, but also not cutting away and allowing it to kind of be this like grungy horror moment mm-hmm. and not just a suggestion Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that works really well. Um, but you were, you were saying, no, that's, I guess all I have to say about that. I think that's maybe one of the best, like, because it's not really as grotesque as the, and like unnecessarily. So as the, um, shooting scene in episode four, I think that's maybe the best sequence of horror so far. Totally. In the, in the series. Um, then kind of the other thing that's going on, in this episode is Alan being commemorated by the town um, and given some sort of, he's like, is there the bridge is being named after him? And I was kind of like, what's going on? And then I kind of, I was like, what's going on here? Why is it like, why are they honoring this weird old man that has bad hair? And then I realized that I've been to like four or five ceremonies in my small town. Of weird old men with bad hair being honored for yes. nothing at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, is is he... Did um, needful things happen? Like, <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> That's like a, a, a running question throughout this show. Yeah, um, w- w- yeah. What is the what's the what's the relationship there? Because this this scene where they're in this it has a pretty explicit reference to Cujo, right? It that has is an explicit a- reference to Cujo. There's also an explicit reference to um, the Dead Zone earlier on. Mm-hmm. So like, <laughs> but Needful Things is this big question because Needful Things is by far the most apocalyptic and, and I, the most preposterous. Like if that happened in any town. The nobody, town's over. Well, for one, the town's over. Two, nobody in any nearby town would stop talking about it ever. Mm-hmm. There would be like fucking like stores and bars named after it. There would be like plaques, <laughs> memorials. Yeah, like like jerk off kids. It would have a punk band called like Needful like Needful Bongs or whatever. <laughs> There'd be a big hole in the ground over there. It, like it. Yeah, um, so that because if that happened, then there's a little bit more context for who he is in this town. But yeah, I can't why, imagine they've incorporated that into this. No, I, story. I, it feels like he's just like you know your average cop that's been a cop for a long time, and they're like, we got we should honor him because he's done good for the community. Right. That being said, I'm I like Scott Glenn's performance more and more as the episodes go on. I think he's maybe one of the best characters because he has like he. he he's bringing a lot of emotion and he's like, it feels real and feels more earned than a lot of the other characters that are right. kind of having to do more hoo-ha type things. Like every time Melanie Linsky has to be a psychic and every time Henry Deaver has to be angry and weird. Right. Um, but the main outcome of that is that, um, Sissy Spacek sees a Cujo dog and for some reason feels the need to jump off the bridge. Right. 
Um, and so that, like, I think, I mean, like, that's the underlying thing. The thing of that is, I mean, her dementia kind of getting more and more out of control. Right. Um, and neither Scott Glenn nor uh, Henry Deaver really knowing how to handle it. And uh, Alan Pangborn, Scott Glenn, um, kind of getting more desperate to kind of fix it. Right. Whereas Henry Deaver feeling more hopeless and more out of control and kind of distant from it. Right. Which has you kind of at the end uh, having Alan Pangborn and the kid kind of teaming up to do something kind of mysterious to fix th- that. Right. Which feels bad. It's not, you can't fix it with without, you know, making some sort of weird deal with the devil, which it seems like is what's happening. Right. And so it gets into this question of, I mean, it, it goes there a lot more explicitly in the next episode, but um, the, the, the scene that stuck with me from this one is the, um, when he's, when he's leaving the, the prison, they make him watch that video. Do you remember that? Of uh, yeah. where the guy's saying like, hey, what does he repeat? He says like something along the lines of don't, don't be afraid to shape your own narrative, like bend your story to your will. Um, and the way that this character is like basically in to, su- to some degree in control of the story and is like pulling everything towards this genre, like, you know, monstrous, gruesome ending. Mm-hmm. Like when he walks, he goes to the family's house and it like transforms from a normal place into some co- sort of Stephen King disaster zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like him making a deal with Pangborn. And then the next episode, which we want to get into it. Or we want to wrap up this one first. I mean, this feels kind of wrapped up. Like you, you just kind of end with, um, with, I mean, you kind of have Henry Deaver still going off and trying to f- figure out things about his youth and what happened with him and his father. Right. And then you have Alan Pangborn really trying to, you know, do something. He's in a desperate mode trying to save Sissy Spacek. Totally. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. What you're saying with. Well, okay. So, episode six, the show gets fucking weird. Yeah. Like- <laughs> episode six is the most Twin Peaks. We were talking about this show could be more Twin Peaksy. It yeah. definitely goes there. Not, you know, it's not Twin Peaks by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, but it, there are some very lynchian scenes right so the the two that that spring to mind are first the flashback sequence of them playing chess do you remember that yeah. oh no it's not a flashback it's it's present day it's of um sissy spacek and his son playing chess together yeah another stephen king actor another stephen king actor the son is play, uh, the the son i believe is the uh is uh mike hanlon in the new it Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the, of them playing chess and her describing how, um, basically introducing this like kind of weird half explained parallel universe situation of oh. how like there's different timelines and the different chess pieces, depending on where she left them, um, help her understand what, like where in time and space she currently is because she has become unstuck from reality which makes perfect sense as just her describing her own dementia and like how like finding these things helps her bring her back but 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 also this is a jj abrams joint right which means that this is entirely literal yeah you know that this is where he's going to go is some sort of weird alternate reality parallel time traveling bullshit right is all going to be way more complicated than necessary. Whether it's lost or like he's, he's not above pulling that into an existing property. If you've seen the, the most recent star Trek movies. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it gets even deeper into that later in the episode in the other bizarre sequence um, where Henry meets the men in the woods. Yeah. Um, so so basically what Henry's trying to do in this episode is he's trying to... Um, he's using the videos that he were taken of him and his father going into the woods. Cause he knows something weird happened there. Right. That, that like he has scrubbed from his memory. And so he's kind of recreating that. And he, um, he finds these two men that he saw at the, at the, uh, cemetery during his, his father's reburial, uh, played by one Rory Culkin, Oh and, God! I didn't even realize that. Yes, it's Rory Culkin, and um, uh, what's his name? It's Odin he, Branch, who is uh, recognizable as the the father figure, the in, deaf fa- deaf father figure in Baby Driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a pretty notable deaf actor. Yeah, um, and he they're they're in search of the uh, basically they're in search of the my, the words of God or the sound of God. Yeah, which is this kind of weird that weird sound that. Henry Deaver has been hearing um, that's been activated since the end of episode four and that uh, apparently his father was in search of his, and that, that he, he thought he had that kind of theological uh, explanation for it. Right. So that, that's nuts. Like the, that the, their, their weird like metaphysical mumbo jumbo also goes into some similar like timeline stuff, different realities being pulled in and this voice kind of connecting different ones. Um, and it kind of brings the question like how this show going forward will, well, I guess, well, we'll choose to, to play with the, the Stephen King mythos and universe. Cause to a certain extent, that's just what the show is doing. It's pulling these totally different universes and timelines together into this like Frankenstein plot like that, made up of bits and pieces of other stories, but without actually connecting to them in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, but like how, like what, what is the, like, what is, what is their, 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 their goal in that? Or what is their ethos? Like what, what should be pulled from, like, what does it mean to pull from something else? And what are you gaining by like, what do you hope to present by creating this Frankenstein show? Yeah. And like, that's the frustrating thing about a lot of shows like this is like, I feel like we won't know if this show is good until like halfway through the season two. Right. Cause it like, it just, it's, it's a type of show that's going, that's going to take until the end of season one for us to even know what it's about really. Right. Cause none of this feels like it's actually what it's really about. Like it doesn't feel like, at this point, it doesn't feel like solving who the kid is is going to solve what that actually is going on because it's going to just lead to this larger mystery box about time travel and alternate universes. Right. And so if we answer who the kid is, which is probably how season one is going to end, it's not really going to feel satisfying because it's just going to lead to more mysteries. Totally. And like every mystery is going to lead to another mystery. And it just doesn't feel like it's like, I don't feel like I know what the show is trying to say or what it's trying to like, what it's trying to be yet. Right. And um, so I just, I I just looked up. So it is confirmed that Castle Rock has been renewed for season two, but it is going to be an anthology series in the vein of something like American horror story. Okay. So, so they have to theoretically by the end of this, everything will be as wrapped up as it ever will be. Okay. But I also still don't believe that because every anthology show says it's going to be separate, but then they're, they're always like, 
you know, give them enough rope and they're going to connect everything together anyways. It's just, it, it just, that, that basically to me tells me that it's going to start fresh with a different set of a different story, even though that story is going to be connected to this one. I, yeah. And personally, I think that, I mean, we'll see where the season ends up going, but I think that would be the way to do it. I mean, with the cast of this caliber, I mean, it'd be hard to get someone like Andre Holland, who's definitely up and up and coming or Melanie Linsky, who's very successful or Bill Skarsgård to stick around indefinitely. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Totally. Um, Yeah. And I, I don't know. On one hand, I like, I wouldn't want them to give up the setting of castle rock of like the, the castle rock that they are, have already built in this Mm -hmm. season for like a brand new one next time. Uh, But on the other hand, they haven't done much world building beyond the characters that we've seen. No, like I need, I need a little bit more advanced planning then of like introducing, I need like a healthy second tier of characters that we don't have. And so, you know, that second and third tier where you can have those people that are like relatively not famous actors or just people who can come back for a few scenes a season. Yeah. Like, and, and then have them appear back oh you know in, yeah in back-to-back seasons and add depth to their characters that way yeah yeah well we'll see yeah i so episode six i guess back to it yeah um, so that that where we were on that that uh the insane rv in the woods with the two weirdos um the one that had made the one guy who had made himself deaf and then Rory Culkin's character who is about to make himself deaf to hear the sound better. Yeah. And they've created like a perfectly silent room in this RV that at, at the end of the, by the end of the episode, they've trapped Henry Deaver in. I love this shit by the way, like that, that whole sequence works so well. And then that weird, like super artificial, brightly lit, like creepy soundproof room in the middle of the like you know very dark woods works so well as a visual like oh it's it, yeah no I'm, I'm eating that up yeah like it it's it's exactly like the the weird shit that we need in yeah. this that like we need more of in this this series because other than that like this episode what else does it have i mean you have alan pangborn going at the kids will to get the to get sheriff terry o'quinn's uh smashed to up retrieve a car from yeah. the junkyard is the main plot thrust of this episode yeah, yeah. And, and so there's like a you know a long scene where he's hunting down this this police car and like okay you know we understand that you you kind of have to you it's a it's an obligatory thing to kind of move that along and the way this episode act truly ends is pretty th- chilling and right exciting making me want to watch the next episode yeah totally so um yeah sissy spacek goes missing yeah there's and when he returns the kid is there with a bunch of blood everywhere and and the in this episode also we should say that the kid had been committed to the mental right like a mental health program mental asylum type thing yeah and in the background you hear like two scenes later that eight people were dead and that some had escaped so he had obviously orchestrated that yeah i'm fine them with them not showing that it just kind of shows that he causes this chaos wherever he goes yeah um and and adding an additional level of like immediacy to how fucked up of a situation this kid is yeah like we're like, like it, it's he's gonna be a problem no matter what the, like, and the atrocities are even happening off camera at this point like you don't even really need to know about it like it's that's just what he does yeah um the i think the weirdest part of this episode is feeling the need to introduce 
Andre Holland's son yes. into it. Super late in the game. Um, Whereas, like, I didn't even really care or know that he had a son up until this point. Yeah. Like, and, like, I don't understand why he needs to be here. Like, I understand that you're, like, doing some sort of thing with, like, him being kind of a deadbeat dad. And then, like, his re- like the relationship between fathers and sons. Yeah. But still, it's, like, I mean... Henry Deaver basically ignores him the entire time to go out do and do what he needs to do. And so like, then you're, he's left having these weird scenes. It's just like, it shows kind of how weirdly Jerry rigged he is in here because like the first scene where he's standing there and then like the kid is outside and he's just kind of like, Oh, what's, what's, what's he doing out there? And then yeah. everyone's just kind of like, uh, he, I, he's my client. I, you know, got him out of jail. I thought that scene works really well, actually. The, the mean, shot of him outside in the suit where it's, uh, it's really spooky. Yeah. But it's also, it's also just goofy and the kind of like where everyone's kind of like, oh, I have to explain this thing to this yeah. fucking kid that's around. <laughs> oh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm already over my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It, it seems super late in the game to introduce that character. And also, I mean, we'll, we'll see if they do anything meaningful with it, but I feel like this show's got enough characters already that they aren't doing enough with. And like, if he's going to be a main character, which like he kind of has to be, if he's the son that's brought in and like lives with them. Yeah. Like I don't need more main characters. I need more side characters that don't, that are going to get a scene, an episode and yeah. Or, you know, and then like, that's all, that's it. You know what? I need less of fucking Jackie Torrance. (laughs) (laughs) Was she in this episode? I think she's only in episode five, right? She might have only been in episode five. We didn't talk about her great, uh, her great scene. Oh my god! Where uh, okay. they explain her name? Oh. That's the worst scene in this in the entire series so far. Yeah, the the ham fisted explanation of ha- where her name came from. Yeah. Oh, I didn't need to know that you thought you're just being edgy, taking the name of your uncle that killed his entire family. Like what the. Like I, I feel like having her name Jackie Torrance is enough of a reference in and of itself. You don't need to explain it further than that. Yeah, that just sucks. Yeah, that scene was that scene was bad. Yeah, that scene was real bad. Yeah, that's like the worst impulses of the show brought to life. Right, like the the wink and nod at the audience, but also in the most explicit, like distracting possible yeah. way. And like I want more Stephen King in this, but I don't want this version where you're right. like making these god awful references that don't that are just like just winking without actually like incorporating anything interesting or saying anything interesting exactly well on that note uh we'll be back yeah i mean just before we go do you like do you think so are how do you how has your feelings changed after these two episodes are you more pro less pro um i i think i I, i'm i'm more slightly more on board um just because i don't know that this is what the third TV show, like current TV show we've watched for, for this series. And like the, it's just such a stark difference from the other two, how watchable this show is. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not a masterpiece. It's not even all that great, but you can fucking turn it on and watch it from beginning to end and like be engaged the entire time without Mm -hmm. losing your mind and frustration and anger. Yeah. Like the, the mist was a challenge that was difficult for me to watch. That that one was actually maybe a little bit better than Mr. Mercedes, which is, so mediocre yeah which by the way that uh, comes back this week no boy it actually comes back it's back the episode has aired uh, as of an hour ago uh, (laughs) 
I mean, but the mist was so bad that we were able to come in and be like, "What the hell it's is true. happening?" It's true. The mist gave the mist was like material to like direct a feeling towards. Whereas Mr. Mercedes was almost not even a television yeah. show. This is like decent. total decent yeah. mediocre peak TV. Yeah. Like high production values, well acted, well shot. Just just takes way too long to get to the point. Yeah, and kind of meandering. Doesn't doesn't do anything particularly new or exciting. But it's certainly not bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when it edges closer to that being kind of meaningless, then it's kind of like, oh, okay, what are we doing here? But yeah. But, but as a whole, I'm enjoying this show. I I like the metaphysical weirdness. I like the horror elements. There's at least one scene that to hook you in in each of the episodes totally. basically so far. So. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. Cool. All right. Well, we'll be back next week to talk about it as well as the next episode of Castle Rock as well as the first episode of season two of Mr. Mercedes. Oh, my God. So get ready. Brendan Gleeson's coming back into your life, everyone. So as is, um, what's his fucking name? Bradley. What's Bradley. Oh, my God. What's his name? I think you mean Tim Curry. What? No, I meant the... <laughs> Hey kids! Cast opposite Brendan Gleeson. I know, I know who you're trying to oh say, my but God, fucking, why would they bring that character back? Like, remember when that first season ended, and he and he he was in a coma, and we said like, well, this show's garbage, but Brendan Gleeson's a great actor. There's no reason you can't have a great cop show starring him, as long as this like fucking wet blanket of an incel supervillain is taken out of the show forever like it could be something worth watching but all of the fucking advertising surrounding this movie is or this this new season is just built around that character coming back so fuck whatever uh, harry no Tr- more, brady hartsfield brady hartsfield played by harry treadaway fuck that all right well we'll have more to say about that soon a lot more to say god damn it all right good night <laughs>